0: You know those ads that always follow you around? I like to use the example of bad boots, right? You look at a pair of boots and then suddenly, everywhere you go, you see the same ad for these boots and you're like, leave me alone. Well, it's all about online advertising, online marketing, web advertising, and it also includes email marketing and something called SEM or search engine marketing, social media marketing. I mean, everywhere you go, somebody's trying to sell you something on the internet and for a good reason. I mean, in 2016, this is amazing. Internet advertising revenues in the United States actually surpassed those of cable television and broadcast television. Who would have ever thought? In 2017, internet advertising revenues in the United States. Take a guess. What do you think that number is? Just say it out loud. Okay, you're wrong. It's $83 billion. Oh my gosh, that's almost 15% more over 2016. And when you start thinking about online advertising, when is the last time you actually clicked an ad? Hmm, I know. That's why a lot of publishers are pushing their content behind paywalls. And in this Commando On Demand podcast, let me tell you, you don't want to miss a moment. It's amazing. You're going to learn the secrets of online advertising, the things that publishers and the advertising networks, they just don't want you to know this. So whether you're simply a person who's wondering why you see certain ads, or maybe you are the CMO, the chief marketing officer wanting to buy ads online, the most cost effective way, we totally have you covered. So stay right where you are. First, we have to say a special thank you to some of our partners who help make these podcasts possible.
1: I'm Heath Schaefer, I'm the CEO of Nishrev LLC. I haven't had a boss in almost 20 years and my wife and I are serial entrepreneurs.
0: Are you ready? Welcome back to this Commando On Demand podcast. We're going to talk with Heath, who you just met, about the nuts and bolts of online advertising. So Heath, let's just start at the beginning. Let's say I'm a publisher, I built a website, and now I want to make money. I want to make millions and millions of dollars. Can I?
1: Well, if you have a really big audience, sure you could, Kim. Like your audience is probably amazing and is probably the kind of audience that advertisers would love to be in front of all the time. Um, so here's the trick as a publisher. You mentioned, like, you have your on-demand and you have subscribers. Right. Because you've proven yourself as a brand that is justified to be paid for. The problem is a lot of publishers, when they first get started, don't have that credibility yet. So getting anyone to pay for their content is very difficult. People have trained themselves or society has trained us that – Everything on the internet should be free. You know, and
0: that's just crazy to me. Absolutely. I mean, we have bills to pay too. We've got writers, researchers. We have to pay our taxes. We have internet servers and fiber lines and bills. And we have to pay insurance. I mean, you know, the list goes on and on and on. Look at this building. Okay. It's some, amazing. Yeah, somebody has to keep the lights on. But for some reason, we get on the internet and we think, oh, wait a minute. Why should I pay for that? And it's the same thing with an app. But, you know, people don't want to pay $2 for an app either. But there is this psychology that everything on the internet should be free, but it's just not realistic.
1: It's not. But unfortunately, it's been proven people would rather have ads, even though they hate them, than pay for something. I can tell you that it's typically 1% of site visitors, even regular site visitors, who will pay to make the ads go away, even $5 a month to their favorite website. Really? It's incredibly small. And so I can tell you, publishers don't want to litter ads all over their website, but they're left with no choice. Because the readers won't pay to not have the ads there, the next best option is to leverage that audience with the advertising market to pay for that publishing, just the way newspapers do. Sure, you subscribe to a newspaper, but it's still filled with ads, right? right? And so it's the same situation. The challenge is, especially for those smaller publishers who we just said don't have enough credibility, they're not big enough to get subscribers, they're also not big enough to have access to advertising agencies, top brands that might fit well on their site. So they're left really often, you go to these sites and you see really terrible ads, you see spammy ads, you know, these Asian dating sites and, you know... um, (laughs) flashing things that say, click here to get this antivirus off your computer, right? This is really garbage stuff. And the challenge is that just makes the publisher's brand
0: look even worse. And, and, you know, and it's a precarious position. It really is because a lot of people don't believe this, but I really do read every single email that people send me. I mean, it's crazy, but I have developed a system over the years that I don't necessarily download it. I just log into the server and I just see the body of the email. And you mentioned like the Asian dating sites, and just this morning I got an email from a guy who's like, "Oh, I don't know why I see ads for you know the Russian dating sites, and you know, and I don't like that ad about Trump, and I don't like the ad about, you know, I don't know how to tell them. but these are sites that you go to, okay? <laughs> I mean, okay, it's if you didn't go to a dating site, if you didn't go to a porno site, that ad is not probably going to pop up, correct?
1: Most of the time, that's true. However, I can tell you with like the Asian dating sites, we've seen this where those ads want to be in front of everyone. They will lie to the marketplace, to the ad markets, even to Google about what their ad is. They'll try to falsify their way oh, in and, and they, they will hit a site there. where – and we know that it's not targeting the user because you'll get an entire site being bombarded, all of its users by this ad. Well, their entire community of, say, cat lovers didn't all go to Asian that's dating sites, right? That is true. But they got it. So there are certain malicious ads like this
0: that don't care who they're in front of and they're not retargeting you. Now, what about the malicious ads that come in? And basically it's a, it's a way that they're trying to get malware onto your system. So if you click on the ad, then you're infected with ransomware or something. How do those ads get through? So
1: unfortunately, the bad actors in the space just like in most things, the criminals are always working harder to stay ahead of the mitigating authority, right? And when you look at the ad marketplace, there's hundreds of millions of ads being submitted all the time. So most of that is getting reviewed by programs, not by humans. So they've gotten very good at making their ads look legitimate. And what they do is they will send a legitimate ad, but they'll piggyback it with that malicious ad, and the malicious ad only happens if certain circumstances are right. So a bot trying to analyze it will always see the good ad. Correct. But when it can tell it's a human being on a cell phone or something, then that bad ad loads. And it looks for keys like your fingerprint in your browser, what kind of data connection you have. Are you running behind a VPN? If it's your phone, is there a gyroscope? You know, they'll actually check to see wow. that level of, to make sure it's not being tricked into revealing itself. And so they're always staying one step ahead of the game. And they're always re-identifying themselves. So if they get caught once, three days later, they look like something else.
0: Because, you know, we see that come in. But the way that we see it is not through the advertising networks, is that somebody will send an email. They'll say, hey, we want to buy ads on your website. And we have this great new site or this great new product. And typically the English isn't that great. And they're willing to pay, say, some crazy CPM, $15, $20 CPM, which actually we should probably explain what CPM is to our listeners. Would you want to take a shot at it? Sure. So CPM means
1: cost per mill or cost per thousand views. Um, and you also hear it as RPM. So the person buying it will say it's their cost, right? But the publisher will call it RPM because it's their revenue. Um, and sometimes there's a difference if there's a, a spread for a fee in between, but um, – those numbers you're saying, yes, they would entice someone to click because those are very high. You wouldn't normally be solicited out of the blue by somebody promising you $15
0: CPMs when a lot of publishers are like, oh, three sounds great. (laughs) And and let's talk about the money side of it right now. Sure. Because a lot of people think that they're going to put up ads and they're going to get a certain number of visitors and it's a brand new website and they're going to make thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars when really these CPMs as we both well know I mean it's not a $15 CPM no and so if we break this down for the average person who's not in our space and not in our industry and doesn't speak the lingo is that you for every 1000 people that you get to see that ad you may make 3 bucks right That's not a lot of money. I mean, if you're just starting out, $3. But as you start building your audience, and you start getting more people engaged in the site, and by doing that with good SEO and good content, not crap content, that you can start making money. So you go into the marketplace. What is the average CPM right now? So it varies so much.
1: It varies on your topic. It varies on where your traffic comes from. So Where the country of the user is matters heavily. US traffic is where most of the demand is and where you'll see your typical strong CPMs. And that'll follow out to other English-speaking level one countries like Europe and Australia and Canada. And then like the Netherlands region is very strong in CPMs. But if you get into Latin America, Italy, Spain, Asian countries, the CPMs drop precipitously. Why is that? It's just what the advertisers have to spend
0: where they Um, want to spend it?
1: Where they want to spend it. But also if you're maybe, say, you're a company in Latin America, you don't have as much U.S. dollar equivalent to be spending anyway. You know, um, you might have a big budget for your local region, but relative to what we're used to as a U.S. publisher, it's not going to look that attractive.
0: Now, yesterday when we were talking, I found it fascinating when you said, well, you know, if you could add a food section to commando.com, that that would be attractive to advertisers. Yeah. What are the different categories? so like if somebody's just listening, they want to start a website. I mean, if you said okay if if you, if you want to start a website and you want to make the most money in advertising, this is the category to go to
1: food and pets all day long, mommy topics all day long. The reason is when you get into those categories, what you're getting as an audience is usually head of household purchasing decision makers that have discretionary income to spend so They're an ideal audience on those topics where you see huge audiences, but lesser CPMs is things like sports, video games, music, Um, because often you start falling yourself down into like the teen and early 20s demographic where there's not as much discretionary spending available. So while they may be very interested in what you're advertising, they don't have money to buy it. So if you had to pick one thing, I'd say. Pets are food all day
0: long. Well, so we're going to have a brand new section at Commando.com. The food section. The pet section. We'll be advertising. Product reviews on the best Cuisinart, right? And they'll be like, Kim, what? how does that relate? You know what's funny is that uh, – do you have an instant pot?
1: Absolutely. We okay. love our instant pot.
0: Okay. What do you cook in your instant pot? All kinds of things, but especially like roasts. Yeah. Pretty good. good. I like uh, – you know, throw some chicken breast with some sauce in there. I mean, fabulous. So I wrote about the Instant Pot and actually the traffic went crazy over uh, an article about an app that you can use with your Instant Pot. So we will uh, consider more content for the Instant Pot. All right. So we have a website and we have great content and now we want to make money. Uh, Naturally, everybody signs up with Google AdWords and AdSense. Yes. Uh, Tell us a little bit about how that works.
1: So AdSense is the starting point of the journey for all publishers because it takes very little to qualify for it. Um, And you'll get a lot of demand. You'll get pretty good fill because Google has the largest market. The challenge is at that early stage is you're providing no competition to AdSense. So there's no price pressure. Yes, you're going to make some money. But also Google charges a fairly high revenue share in AdSense. They charge something like 32%.
0: So the, every, out of every dollar – Out of
1: every dollar that the take publisher cents. pays, they're taking 32 cents. Correct. Um, but when you're small, that's kind of your only safe bet because a lot of the networks that will talk to you when you're that small are probably going to serve you malicious ads or really unattractive things that affect your brand. But as you move up, as your audience grows, there are what we call like tier three and tier two ad networks that will become available to you that will help at least add some – competition to Google and make you a little bit more money and that are still brand safe. Eventually, when you get up to, say, $30,000 of ad revenue with AdSense, you can qualify for AdX, which is Google's more professional product. Um, The biggest benefit to that is the revenue share drops to 16%.
0: That's a big difference.
1: Yeah. Yeah so it 's interesting when you talk to google they 'll try to convince you you don 't need adex it 's the same demand so unless you need a special feature of adX, certain uh rules for how you manage your inventory you don 't actually need it. But the reality is you do because it 's half of the rev share wow. so if nothing else were to change, you make more money right. But the reality is your ability to qualify for AdEx is kind of a pivotal point in when you know that you're kind of ready for the next level of monetization and to reach uh, better brands and things like this. But beyond that, you still always have to be making Google work for it. And that's where you need access to as many tier one networks as you can get. These are other big exchanges that compete directly with Google, like AppNexus or OpenX or Index Exchange. And there's a, there's a handful of others, but um, they really broaden your reach of brands. And they really bring you closer to the true value of what your inventory is worth and what your audience is worth.
0: See, A lot of people don't know this. No. They just think you, you open up a website, you throw some display ads, and you let Google fill in the blanks and you make what you can. They don't realize that there are all these other advertising networks that will compete for that particular space. Now, when we talk about display ads – Before we go much further, speak a little bit about which ads perform the best on a site. I mean, what size ads do you really want? I mean, then there's 300 by 250. There's takeover ads. Which ones – I mean, if we had to pick like the top three ads that actually work, what are they?
1: Well, the 300 by 250 is fantastic. It's got very high demand, and that's one of the biggest things you need to look for is it's not even what's got the highest CPM but also the best fill rate. So 300 by 250 is that sweet spot. It works on every device, so it's going to fit everywhere no matter what your layout is. You're going to have lots of demand, and it gets usually pretty good viewability in its placement. Really, though, these days it's all about viewability and not location, so you want something that will be on screen all the time. So the sticky or adhesion footers, we call them, that are always in view, top of the line because you're talking about it getting 90% viewability, and viewability is what people will pay for.
0: So the ad's always there.
1: Well, you you could collapse it as the user. If you don't want an ad there, there's almost always a button you can click to make it go away. But it loads right on top of the screen. You don't scroll down to it. It's overlaying the bottom edge of the browser at all times. And that ad's there, and it can refresh every so many seconds, depending upon your advertiser's rules. Um, and we have those for both mobile and desktop. So it's a universal unit. Um, It performs very well. And you can also do things like sticky sidebars. You'll see on some sites where as you're scrolling through a long article, that ad keeps kind of coming with you. Yes, exactly. That's, That's also the same idea because it's always in view. It's right there. It's ever present. Even if the person's not looking at it, they're subconsciously taking that ad in because it's in their periphery the whole time. So very effective ad unit without blinging and motion and video and all these other things.
0: Yeah, and the pop ups and the takeovers, yeah. and it's you well, know, it gets kind of crazy.
1: Well, the nice thing now is pop overs, pop unders, all these things, they're considered very far from best practice. Top networks won't work with you if you're using these things. That is the kind of stuff that is relegated to really sites who have somehow been banned from the good stuff. Okay. <laughs> if you break the rules, you will get banned, and if you get blacklisted from a network, it's usually kind of game over. It's almost impossible to get unblacklisted unless you. Know someone who can call in a favor for you.
0: Please, please, please. You are gone forever.
1: And once that starts happening, you might as well go get a new domain and start over.
0: Okay, this is all really great stuff. And the real reason why you're here is so that we can get into the secrets of online advertising, how publishers make money, and how these ads track us wherever we go online. But before we get to all of that and the way that you as a publisher can make more than 30% in your advertising revenues just by listening to this podcast, you're going to learn the insider secrets, we have to say a quick thank you to one of our sponsors who helped make this podcast possible. That's Stitch Fix. Let me tell you something. My life is hectic between work and my family. I don't always have time to shop for myself. And that's why I'm super excited about Stitch Fix. Oh my God, this is so fun. Stitch Fix is an online personal styling service. What's fabulous about it is that it finds and delivers clothes, shoes, and accessories that will fit your body and budget and lifestyle. All you have to do is go to stitchfix.com slash Kim and you tell them your sizes, what styles you like, and how much you want to spend on each item because that's important. You'll be paired with your very own personal stylist who will handpick items to send right to your door. And I love this. You try them on, but you pay only for what you wanna keep, what you really like, and then just return the rest. Shipping, exchanges, and returns are always free. There's no subscription required too. Stitch Fix's styling fee is only $20, and this is applied toward anything that you keep from your shipment. It's so easy to get set up. I can't wait to get my first box. Get started right now at stitchfix.com Kim, and you're going to get an extra 25% off when you keep all the items in your box. You have to try this out. It's so great. stitchfix.com slash Kim. Okay, welcome back. So we've covered a lot of ground here. I mean, we've talked about CPMs and the size of the ads and which ads actually perform the best. So we have our website. We've signed up for Google. Now, talk to us about this header bidding. This is so fascinating to me. Well, header bidding is
1: probably the most exciting thing that has come along for publishers in the last several years in online advertising. Before header bidding, there was no way to know you were truly getting the best price the market would pay for your inventory. It took a lot of random guessing and experimenting. But what header bidding is, this will blow you away. When you hit a website that has header bidding, in the first one second you're there, it sends all the information that your browser knows about you to the ad marketplace, gets bids back from every exchange they're connected to, picks a winner, asks Google if they want to beat it, does, picks the winner, shows the ad in one second.
0: Okay. That is just crazy. That's amazing. It, that it can do how, – how does it do all that in just a second? The industry
1: has worked very hard to create all these data connections that are very fast. And the browser at all times knows who you are, right? The, you mentioned the ad that follows you around. Correct. That's because when you shop at these places, they're dropping these cookies and these tracking pixels into your browser. And they're following you everywhere you go. So when you show up at another website, that network already knows who you are. It already knows where you've been. It's got an ad waiting to show you. It just has to get it for the right price. So when I say, Kim's on my website, what will you pay to show her your ad? They already know what they want to pay. They send it right away oh. instantaneously. And it's only a matter of who bid more at that moment. So finally,
0: there's competition with
1: Google. True competition. So Google will still buy more than 50% of your inventory because almost everyone uses Google's ad server, which means they get first or last choice. So when the auction sends a winner, Google gets to say, I'll beat that.
0: Okay. And, and this person's worth it to me.
1: Yeah. Or I won't and go ahead and show that winner's ad. They get, they get the last shot at it. But it's truly making them pay what the market will bear with transparency because we see as the publisher every single bid that we receive from every single exchange for that impression. We know what we sent to Google as the winner, and you can even manipulate that. If you want to, if you really want to challenge Google, you could bump those all up by 25% before you send it to the ad server and see if they still beat that. (laughs) I mean, there are ways you can still really try to pressure Google, but at least now you know what the broader market is truly willing to give you in that moment. You don't have to play with floors, and you don't have to do these manipulations if you have a really robust auction set up already.
0: So how many different networks compete against
1: Google? Oh, there's a lot. Uh, The problem is there's a lot of networks that are simply reselling other networks, and they might have a sliver of unique demand, but 90% of what they're offering you is the same thing this other one's offering
0: you. But they're taking a piece of the action.
1: They are, right. And so that's kind of one of the harder things to manage when you're talking to all these networks is, is there enough truly unique demand that they're offering you to be willing to put them into the system? I would say there's about 10 really good marketplaces and then there's 20, 30, you know, secondary networks that are mostly reselling.
0: So if I have a website and I want to set up this competition against Google with these other networks, how do I do that? It's kind of hard.
1: The technology is there. Thanks to a company called AppNexus, the header bidding technology framework and standards are open. And there are some reference implementations and things that you can use, but the reality is if you don't have an in-house dev team and professional adops ops person, you can't really do it yourself. So you have some choices. You can use some kind of free implementations that some of these tier two and tier three networks provide as kind of bait to get into your mix. So, so you'd
0: put some code at the top of the website? Yeah. Is that basically where it is? You stick a
1: line of code into the header of your website and it puts it in. And some of these companies will connect it to your ad server for you. If you're bigger, if you're, say, your size, there are companies like mine that offer a managed service where we've already built all the technology, we already have all the relationships with the top networks, and we work on a revenue share, and we will put all this into play on your site and give you all the reporting, and you don't have to worry about it. And then for really big publishers, they will build an entire ad ops department in their business, and they'll have engineers and and all this to make this happen but it's worth the investment because this level of sophistication gets you so much more revenue than if you didn't have it.
0: You know, it's just so fascinating to me. I mean, this whole process of online advertising and how, you know, we heard about the Pew research this past week where they did a report where people on Facebook, like 50 percent of the people on Facebook, they didn't really put together that everything that they put on Facebook was being tracked and sold and being part of their online profile, which I'm like, so you thought that all this was just going to be free? I mean, this is just happening. Let's backtrack just a second, because what you were talking about with me outside the podcast about viewability, Mm -hmm. that is fascinating. Talk a little bit about that. So it used to
1: be in the industry that all people cared about is they view a website like a newspaper above the fold and below the fold. And this idea that we'll pay more for an ad if it's in the top half of a page, because somebody doesn't have to scroll to see it. The problem is, and especially with the advent of mobile is that's actually a terrible way to measure ad effectiveness because most people scroll on a website before the top ad even finishes loading. So it's actually a terrible ad location. And as the advertisers have become wise to that. They've started saying, well, I don't want to pay for an ad that nobody sees. So I'll tell you what, you need to be able to measure for
0: me if somebody actually saw my ad. Which is necessary. I mean, it's important. I mean, mean, because otherwise you're just like, okay, well, I'm just paying for what? What did I get?
1: Absolutely. In fact, I even, some of my clients I've had don't want to do things to improve viewability. They just want the volume, like they'll refresh ads that aren't even in view on the page. And I've tried to explain to them, I was like, well, then you're effectively stealing. You just charge them to load something somewhere that no one's ever seen. You didn't even actually show somebody their advertisement. That's not healthy, and brands are going to stop paying you. Correct. They're eventually going to figure this out. And brands are getting very sophisticated now. They're really consolidating where they're spending the money to brand-safe sites. They're consolidating money to known publishers who they can trust that their ad will be shown next to content that they want to be affiliated with. You know, There's a lot more focus on this. But the viewability metric – For example, a lot of brands now are saying we will not pay for an ad slot that is not 60% viewable. Well, a lot of publishers, if they're not using things like lazy loading and proper refreshing techniques, they're not hitting 60% viewability on most of their ad units, which means they're ineligible for all the spend.
0: So it's more – as a publisher, it's more than just having that 300 by 250. It's viewability. What other factors do they need to take into consideration? I shouldn't say they. I should say we.
1: <laughs> well, there's lots of other rules. Like you can't have too much density of ads. There are standards between how much content to ad ratio you can have.
0: Well, it used to be that Google would only want three ads. What was that? Three or three or four ads a page. Is that correct?
1: It was three at one point. Then it was four. Then it was five. Now they use a ratio. Uh, the, generally, the rule is it should not be more than a third of what's on the page is advertising. Right? So it should be two-thirds content to a third ads. But there are some networks that will say you can't have more than five ad units on a page. And and one of the challenges as a publisher is there are all these different exchanges that have different rules. Google will say you can refresh every 30 seconds. AppNexus will say every 60 seconds. Someone will say you can only refresh what's in view, and if you don't, we'll ban you. you know? um, so, and they don't even measure viewability the same way. Your viewability score from Google and from AppNexus aren't the same number.
0: So what does a publisher do?
1: Your best. Try. <laughs> Uh, I mean, really, truly, I think what you often do is you default to whichever is the strictest uh, interpretation of the, the rules, right? So, like, if you want to have App Nexus and Google, you're going to go at 60-second refresh because it's safe for both of them. Even though Google would let you go faster, AppNexus won't, so you pull back to the App Nexus speed, right, as an example. And, and they're always changing and adapting their standards as well. So that's one of the other biggest challenges in this is the rules are changing all the time, and you have to keep up.
0: Now, can you set some rules that if people are coming to your site from, say, Facebook or Pinterest, that they see certain ads versus if somebody's just typing in an address?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, so you can always see where traffic's come from. Now, you need programmers to do these things for you because you're really having to consume variables that are in the browser to do this. But we do this all the time where we treat, say, on a site – the subscribers who are logged in very differently from an advertising standpoint
0: than people who are not logged in who came from a Google search. See, I love that. And as we redeploy commando.com over the next couple of months, we are going to do that you and me Heath. Yeah. Okay. So, if you are a Kim Commando Show club member and sign up now by the way at getkim.com, little shameless plug right there. That you will see different content. You will see less advertising than if you weren't logged in. And I think that's attractive to people. It really is, and especially if – you may still
1: have some advertising, but it would all be highly relevant and in maybe internal product advertising, right? But never external stuff, which means they're also getting the benefit that you're not sharing data about them to the exchange. So if they care about privacy at all...
0: Which uh, which my people do.
1: Yeah, and I really do. I mean, it's ironic that I'm in advertising, and yet I also greatly care about privacy. But I also care that publishers, since I've been a publisher myself, that publishers get paid for the great product they're putting out. And if people won't pay to subscribe, then they don't have any choice but to go the advertising route, right? So, but for the people who do care about that privacy and are willing to pay for a better experience and a faster page load and all that... It's absolutely a great strategy to say, for my subscribers, here's the benefit. You subscribe, I'm not going to show you ads, or I'm going to show you way less ads. Right. And I have clients that take all different levels and mix of that. But it's a fantastic approach.
0: Okay, this is all really great stuff. We have to take a quick break, so stay right where you are. Special thank you to some of our partners who make these Commando On Demand podcasts possible. Okay, welcome back. So tell a story about you and Pinterest. That was so funny.
1: <laughs> so cakecentral.com, which was the site we've been publishing for you know 15 years, or still is. I mean, we're still publishing it. And um, at
0: one point you were at what? You were what did you say, 39 million?
1: We were 30 million page views a month. Wow, that's we huge. We were big. By far the number one source on the internet for cake decorating, pictures and recipes and all these things.
0: So do you decorate cakes on the side?
1: I don't, but I encourage my wife to. (laughs) No, I mean, we even, we publish a beautiful magazine that was called The Vogue of Cake. And, you know, we help cast TV shows to find new talent for these cake challenges. You know, we're really embedded in the cake world and the go-to community.
0: Now, how did you get involved in the cake
1: community? Well, that's a whole nother fascinating story. (laughs) In 2004, when... You're so funny,
0: Heath. You are.
1: (laughs) What you know, it's amazing because it's the only business we ever started that wasn't supposed to be one. And... It was a product of we sold a web hosting company that my wife and I were running in the early 2000s. And she wanted to take a break and she said, well, what do I want to do? Uh, you know, what? I want to take a cake decorating class. My mom always made cool cakes and I want to make them too. Okay. So she goes to Michael's, takes a class. She goes on the internet, all excited to find a website where people are talking about cake decorating and share their stuff. And there isn't one. There was like two communities you had to pay to join. and It was only established cake decorators. So she put up a forum for her and her 10 friends from Michael's to keep up with each other's <laughs> projects. Right after we did that, Food Network aired their first cake challenge competition show. And the only place talking about it on the entire internet was our little forum of 10 people.
0: Wow.
1: And so people started showing up. And for the first like two years, my wife would spend hours a day finding answers to questions people were asking that she didn't know the answer to herself.
0: All right. Because she wanted to learn. Well,
1: that – and she wanted those people to find what they needed, and she knew it wasn't anywhere. By about year three, the community hit a critical mass where there were actually people who knew what they were doing that could help each other, and she didn't have to do this every day, you know. Um, Along the way, she became a very good cake decorator, but the site just started going, and then one day we're like, the servers getting expensive. We have to find a way to pay for that. Right. So then we started an online decorating shop, you know, where you could buy the supplies. And then our garage was full of cake decorating supplies and I was spending all my time <laughs> shipping boxes of stuff. And we realized-
0: A big Friday night there at the, uh, at the household. Big every night. <laughs> putting together orders. It
1: was, you know, just so bootstrap, right? But then we realized one day we said, we're spending all of our time fulfilling product and not engaging with the community, which was the whole point of the site. And so we need to find a different way to pay for this because running the shop is not fulfilling why we have this website. And that's what led us to online advertising. And that's how I got started in figuring out, well, if I'm going to do online advertising, how am I going to do it well and make enough money? And so for you know, 15 years, I learned everything I learned making Cake Central function. That's awesome. But that's how we ended up in Cake decorating, totally randomly. It wasn't supposed <laughs> to be a business. And then because of timing, it became the biggest website on the topic. But then Facebook and Pinterest came along. And between Facebook groups and Pinterest having every dang photo in the world on oh my it. my gosh, yes. You know, we went from... 30 million page views to 3 million.
0: Which, you know, that happens. Yeah. I mean, you know, there was a time where it was kind of the reverse, but where we would put a posting up on Facebook, say, you know, I don't know, the five best laptops or whatever it may be. And then we would see like automatically 50,000 people at Commando.com. Okay. Guess how many people would come to Commando.com today if I put up the five best laptops of 2019? On Facebook? Yes. How many people are? How many people is, are, do you think Facebook's going to deliver? OK. Remember, it used to be like 50,000. a 1,000 maybe? Eight. Eight. Wow. I sit there and I think, why do we even post on Facebook? Because you know what they want you to do? They want you to stay on Facebook. Well, and they want you to boost the post. Mm-hmm. So I figured just for giggles, maybe one day I'd boost the post. Now, I'm not going to pay – they wanted like $3,000. I'm not kidding you. To boost the post – to show that to more people who follow Kim Commando's show on Facebook, so I figured, you know what? I'm going to give him a hundred bucks. Just let's see what it is. Okay, I think it went from eight people to like 25 people. Definitely not a good use of any type of advertising revenue. Yeah, uh, but. Talk about what you do for people who come to the site from Pinterest.
1: So ironically, even though Pinterest takes so much traffic, they're our second largest referral source because our pictures all get stuck on Pinterest and then linked to us, right? So – but what happens is that's what we call bounce traffic. Somebody comes, they see that one photo they clicked and then they go right back to Pinterest, to that Pinterest board. So – we kind of take the approach of, well, fine, if you're only going to give me one page view and you're not really going to stick around, <laughs> I'm going to get as much advertising dollars out of you as I can. So Boom. we're going to overlay the, we're going to put ads over the image. We're going to load five other ad units that we wouldn't normally load. You know, We're going to take advantage of that moment because that person isn't staying. And they're, if they come back, it's going to be because they clicked on another Pinterest board photo and ended up for a moment on our page, right? And that's kind of in our strategy of, you have a core audience, and they're valuable to you, and you want them to have a great experience. But you have a lot of other people who pop in for a second, get something, never come back. Correct. And they're not, they're not adding anything to your community and your audience and, and benefiting your business in any real way. So you might as well get what you can in the moment that you have yeah, it.
0: Yeah, because I mean, they have a, it's a high bounce rate. So yes, exactly. They're not going to hang around. So we do that with certain types of traffic. Which I think is fascinating that as a publisher, you really have a lot more control than what I, I think the average Joe thinks that they have control over these ads. All right. Let's go back to the header bidding. So how much more money can we make? Well, so it depends how much you
1: were already doing, right? Like how sophisticated your non-header bidding solution was. But let's say you had a pretty good non-header bidding solution. What we typically see is almost instantly a 30% lift. Which is huge. Yes. Absolutely huge. Huge. Yeah. Now, of course, for most publishers, they probably had to pay somebody to implement that. So they're not realizing the full 30% lift, but that's just a starting point. That's like the overnight change before things really get optimized. I mean, I have clients who, you know, after a year of doing all this, they're making double what they were making. So it just, it really depends. It really depends where you were starting at and also how good your partner is that you take because there is unfortunately in this business, a lot of people out there making identical offers and identical promises. And they can't actually deliver because they're just trying to white-label somebody else's solution. They don't really know what they're doing. There are a handful of people who are really good at this. Um, But as a publisher, it's really hard to know who.
0: It is difficult. Now, you say optimize. How do you optimize it over, say over that year?
1: Well, lots of things. So we talked about like how many networks there
0: are, Right. you want to sign up with everybody you can? I mean, the whole idea would be like, oh, my gosh, let's get as many competitors as we can against Google. But that's not necessarily the case. It's not.
1: And you do see some sites that, in my opinion, it is a mistake. You'll see sites trying to run 15 people in their auction or 15 different networks. And there's reasons why you don't want to do that. For example, your browser can only handle six queries at a time. So if you're running 15, you have people who are timing out. They can't even get a bid back to you before you've ended the auction. But you can't just say, well, I'm just only ever going to work with these six because different sites do better with different networks depending on their audience. So it takes a little bit of trial and error of putting in different bidders and seeing how they respond to your audience. There's definitely within my clients a wide range where I I don't run the same networks on each one of them. There's usually the same top two or three, but that other half is really going to be independent, Um, especially if you have a lot of international traffic, you need to rely on different sources. So – it takes a little bit of experimentation that way. There's also – I mentioned timing out. You want to keep your page speeds fast because there's a lot of evidence that tells us yes. you know, if a site takes more than three seconds to load, you start losing visitors.
0: That's interesting because you know, as we've been talking to different web developers about commando.com is I had a, a company in the conference room with me last week, and I explained to them that load time was so important. Okay? And these are web developers that I'm telling And I said, you know, I want to make it an integral part of the contract that the website is going to load, say, in four seconds. You know, they would not agree to that. I said, so you could develop a website that would load in 30 seconds, which is dead. I'm dead in the water. At 10 seconds, I'm dead in the water. But they would not put that in the contract that – Whatever they developed would load. I even said I can them a range. I said give me like four to seven seconds. They would not put that in the contract, so they didn't get the deal. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, but you know I can kind of understand where somebody might do that, and the reason would be if they're not actually managing the servers and everything else. Like if they're just writing it, there's things out of their control. Like they could say under an ideal circumstance, this code could execute that fast. Yes, but they wouldn't give
0: me any number. Nothing. Wow. No number whatsoever. Yeah,
1: that's concerning because today it is. I mean, with mobile first development is the approach with the fact that, I mean, we see some sites with 70% mobile traffic and that's where you see the load time matter the most because you have these limited data connections.
0: What should the load time be? You mentioned, should it be three seconds on mobile first?
1: Yes, but. That's, that's qualified. You want the content to load first. Now the ads might take longer and the ads almost always will, and especially if you're running header bidding, I mean, you're allocating in some cases, people allocate two whole seconds just to load the the auction. But as long as you load it after content, you're not going to lose the user because they got what they came for. If The ad doesn't show, it doesn't show. Right? right. But if you don't structure that correctly, then yeah, I mean, you will lose users over page load. And that's why there's focus on things like Google AMP and some other mobile first, you know, loading technologies. Um, but yeah, those... you mentioned
0: lazy loading as one of them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So lazy loading is just when you don't even call the ad until the user has scrolled to that part of the site that's going to need it. And the reason you don't want to is you don't want to waste the, the time and the bandwidth going out and making a call for an ad you may never show. And, you know, one thing we take for granted in most of the United States is unlimited data packages. But everywhere, that's not the case. So if you're using up people's bandwidth on stuff that they really don't need, you're actually eating away at their data, connect, you know, their their amount right. of bytes. And so I think that there's still a lot of work to do in our space about how can we compress that. Um, We've added so much bandwidth with header bidding to the marketplace because we are making so many ad calls. I think that's still something that's going to innovate a lot over the next year.
0: All right. So Heath, let's say I'm a publisher and I want to make more money and I want to get into pre-bid heading, and I want to know more about optimizing my space and my ads. Is there a certain criteria before I can get into this pre-bid or heading? I mean, do I have to have my website at a certain point before it actually makes sense for somebody like you to get involved?
1: Well, yeah. So certainly you need a certain amount of scale to justify the cost of implementing this. I usually try to say a site should be at a million page views a month. You can find people who work with you at half a million But it's really tight just because the cost to do it doesn't leave much room for error if you're getting down to that half a million. So if you're under a million page views, you might not be ready unless you have your own technical sophistication that you could do this yourself. But if you need to work with a partner – now, you could do it – you could kind of dabble with it.
0: Okay.
1: If you're smaller, you could go to some of the – what I call tier two networks like Sovereign where they do have – they have a wrapper out of the box that you can put single line of code. They'll help you put on your site. And it will do some of this header bidding. It won't be as optimized as some of the things I've talked about, but it is kind of a gateway into it. They won't manage it for you, but they will give you some support to try to figure it out. For some people that will do better than just running, just say AdSense or AdX. Sure. And then once you get to the size of, say, a million page views, then you're ready to go out to a fully managed professional service that will be able to kind of take you to the next level.
0: And that would be you. That is what I do, <laughs> okay. yes. And how would somebody to get a hold of you, Heath?
1: Well, you could go to n i c h e r e v. N-I-C-H-E-R-E-V.com. We are a boutique agency. We are very careful in who we partner with to make sure it'll be a, a good match. We don't take a lot of clients. But. For the right clients, you know, we are always happy to, to bring that value and that support. The biggest thing is, whether it's me or somebody else, do it through a referral. Find someone who's already doing it, who already has a great experience. That's important. Because there are, I hate to say this, but the hardest thing for us is overcoming the noise of all the pretenders in the space. The space is so filled with people trying to make money grabs who haven't been a publisher in your shoes, who are just trying to... Say, oh, that looks easy. I can get 10% or 15% of somebody's business if I just tell them these fancy words and they'll say a bunch of buzzwords to you and sound all official. You really need to find someone else who is a very satisfied publisher and ask them who they're working with.
0: You know what? This has all been great advice. We have to do this again. I'd like to go in deeper. As far as the type of ads, the third party tracking, because a lot of people are concerned about that, where my data is being sold. So you come back? Absolutely. That's a whole other huge topic. <laughs> it is. Hey, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Kim. I'm America's digital pro, Kim Commando. Now, I hope you got as much as podcasts as we did here in the studios, put it all together. That's one of the perks of working here, that we get paid to learn. And then we share that knowledge with you. Okay, your part is to pay it forward. It's free, so why not share this podcast, like it. And listen, if you have a topic that you'd love for us to explore and investigate, just let us know. And heck, if you have a question about something digital I can help you with, call 602-212-0058. Leave me your question and your contact information. That number again, 602-212-0058. I'll talk to you then.